0: hello listeners before we begin a few brief notes first of all unfortunately the audio files for this episode were damaged and there is a severe dip in the audio quality around 13 minutes in we're really sorry we did our best to fix it hopefully it's still listenable secondly there are a few brief content warnings for this episode this episode contains profanity discussion of sexual assault discussion of worker exploitation and some mentions of American politics, which might be uncomfortable for those who, like us, spent most of late 2019 and early 2020 in a state of severe anxiety. As always, please take care of yourselves while listening. And now, here we go. listeners, and welcome to Classically Trained, a podcast where we discuss modern media that depicts the ancient Mediterranean world, its peoples, and its stories. I'm Julia, your resident Greek literature specialist and linguist-ish. And I'm Allison, your
1: resident Roman archaeologist and late antique scholar. And today we are
0: talking about Hades Town. Yay! We're excited about this one. Both of us like Hades Town a lot. Well, okay, spoilers. Both of us like Hades Town a lot, actually. <laughs> yes. But um, and also both of us have like consumed this before. Unlike basically al- almost everything else that we've done. Yeah. Like both of us had consumed this not only before but also recently. And also we've gotten like requests to cover this. So. Not that we needed
1: requests to cover this. Like this was this was on our list well before we started this podcast because
0: yeah we um, always we always knew that we wanted to do Hades Town. We decided to wait a little while to do it because we wanted to like have our format sorted out a little bit so that we wouldn't fuck it up horribly.
1: I mean yeah this is why we spent four episodes doing Troy Fall of the City because at least if those wh- were episodes were terrible, it was about Troy Fall of the City.
0: Who yeah. gives a shit? Nobody cares. <laughs> But uh we sort of know what we're doing now a little bit maybe, so maybe. Um, yeah. But before we get any further into like our histories with Hades Town, how much we love it, etc., let's just quickly explain for anybody who isn't already familiar with it, like what it is and also what happens in it. I mean, I'll say right now, if you haven't listened to it, you should. It's good, it's enjoyable, but yeah, we'll we'll recap anyways. So, Hadestown, Town is technically several things. Uh, first and foremost, it is a Broadway musical. It premiered on Broadway in March of 2019. It premiered off-Broadway in, uh, like, spring 2016. And prior to any of that, it existed first as, like, a small musical, and then as what its creator, Aeneas Mitchell, refers to as a folk opera, basically a concept Album, like a folk concept album, which was released in 2010. So there was kind of like. It was like a small independent musical in like 2006, 2007, and then Mitchell wrote it into a concept album, and then. She met a director, and they reworked it into a Broadway musical, and it was off-Broadway for a couple years, and then it made it onto Broadway, and it had a great run on Broadway. As far as I can tell, it was really popular. I think it was quite successful, and then the pandemic hit. Yes, it
1: got coronavirus
0: Yeah, Um. so hopefully it'll get a bit of a revival, but... Before we yeah before we get too far distracted by that why don't you tell us yeah
1: first I will fill in a little bit more backstory about uh, Anais Mitchell before I do my summary I think it's I think it's worth noting that Anais Mitchell actually like never set out to write a musical bits and pieces of this musical actually like songs from that ended up being in the Broadway version of this musical some of them she had written as far back as the early two thousands and they actually appeared in some of her albums that she released she's kind of like a folk singer songwriter it's a lot of her music is like her and a guitar type vibe um so yeah she sort of wrote a musical by accident which is kind of interesting okay so now I'm gonna get into a summary great so Hades Town tells the story of two sets of lovers Orpheus and Eurydice and Hades and Persephone Orpheus is the son of a muse um and he has a magical singing voice His mother abandoned him, and the god Hermes watches over him. At the beginning of the musical, Orpheus meets Eurydice, and they fall in love. The central tension between them in the first act occurs because food is difficult to obtain because the seasons are out of whack. This is thanks to the erratic behavior of Persephone, which is caused by strife with her husband Hades. Orpheus believes he can solve this by causing spring to come again with his song. But in the meantime Eurydice is having difficulty finding food. After a terrible storm Eurydice is enticed by Hades to come down to the underworld to become one of his undead workers so that she won't be hungry anymore. Orpheus who has been away uh, working on this song comes back to find Eurydice gone. Hermes tells him that she's gone to the underworld so he decides to walk to the underworld to go get her. When he arrives in the underworld, Hades confronts him, but Orpheus charms Persephone and all the undead workers with a song about Persephone and Hades' love. Hades decides to let Orpheus and Eurydice go, uh, with the caveat that Orpheus cannot look behind him while they're walking back up to the above world. Land of the living. (laughs) Yes. So Orpheus fails to walk back without looking back at Eurydice, so she is sent back to the underworld. However, Persephone is inspired by Orpheus' song, and she makes spring come again.
0: Alright, yeah, that's that's basically what happens. I, I do think it's worth clarifying that this, it doesn't have, like, a classical Greek setting. It has this kind of Great Depression era setting, and a lot of the themes are represented by that. Like, there's a lot of stuff going on in here with, like, kind of ideas about, like, workers' struggle and exploitation by your employer as, like, a a strong thing that's going on. And that's worth mentioning up front, because that's also really related to a lot of the things that I have to say about this and how it works as a piece of reception.
1: Yeah, it is interesting because you have these, like, you've got the narratives about the, like, love story, but then you've also got the narrative about Hades as Jeff Bezos. Yeah. (laughs) Which is what I wrote in my notes for this episode. I was like, Hades is Jeff Bezos. Um, And sort of how... Hades's emotional reality is, like, tied into his, like, exploitation of workers, essentially.
0: Yeah. And so I think it's also worth mentioning as a second thing that also in the, like, dramatis personae of this are the fates who are there and do some stuff. We'll talk about them in a minute. And then also that the chorus is, like, a character in a way. We can talk about this a little more in a minute, but Mm that the chorus is mostly the people of the underworld who have, who are, like, in wage slavery to Hades, essentially.
1: they have sort of two parts. They do also act as the sort of, like, surrounding people when they're on Earth, who are also sort of starving. Yeah. Um, But yeah, they're definitely sort of more, like, literally
0: more vocal as... And they have a stronger identity... Yeah, they yeah. have a stronger identity mm-hmm. in that role. Okay, yeah, so I did research uh, this time. I guess, well, okay, so before I get into any of the, like, kind of talking points that I had about this, I did want to say for the record that both both of us listened to not just the musical. So we're going to be talking mostly about the musical, specifically the original Broadway cast recording, which is available on Spotify and other places. You can listen to it for yourself. Just because the musical's, like, easier to talk about, but both of us did listen to the Folk album as well, and if you don't want to sit down and listen to two hours of a complete narrative and just want to, like, listen to the songs and get the, like, major beats and the kind of vibe of this, this retelling, listening to the Folk album is great.
1: Yeah, I actually, so it's interesting, I was talking about this at some point with one of my friends, and... She actually prefers the folk album um, because she doesn't like all the extra narrative bits in uh, the musical. I actually prefer the musical album because I like those that like sort of very clear narrative thread. Um, but if you're not somebody yet who enjoys listening to musical soundtracks, then the folk album is fantastic.
0: Yeah, it's a it's an amazing album, and all of the major beats of the story and the thematic stuff like it's all in there too. It also does have a folkier style as compared to the musical, which is more Broadway. It's also, like, kind of more swing, I would say. Um,
1: I don't know if I would describe it as...
0: The style is just slightly different. Neither of us are really music people. Yeah. So we can't really talk about... Like, I can't. I don't think I can qualify the differences very clearly mm-hmm. in musical style. Yeah, it's... But it's different. Yeah. <laughs> I will also say as to the differences between the two. Well, there's some things that the Broadway musical does really effectively as far as its, like, poetics and its musicality that I'm going to talk about here that aren't so much a thing in the concept album. But we can circle back to that.
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: So, can I start with my one gripe? Go, go for it. Okay. I have very few bad things to say about Town. The one thing is... And I understand that this is, like, probably 80% because of, like, meter. Things that do classical myth and refer to the underworld as hell or frame it as hell in the Christian sense make me fucking crazy. (laughs) We talked about this a little bit when we did Percy Jackson because I praised the lightning thief Mm -hmm. for having the underworld just be a boring bureaucracy because that's what it is. Yeah. And I understand that in Hades Town, there's kind of this idea that the underworld has changed and become this like more kind of hellish circumstance where all these people are like laboring endlessly and it's kind of, it's hellish. But that's not what the underworld was like in the Greek conception. And it just always feels lazy to me. It always feels like a lazy way to interpret the Greek underworld to be like, it's hell. I don't know. There's just, like, there's other stuff you could do, you know?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I definitely get that. But I think it is, it is largely, I would think that, yeah, it is largely a meter thing because they do, like, there is this presentation of the underworld that's maybe a little bit more harsh than some of the, some of the presentations, like, that we get in primary sources, this definitely isn't an underworld that is conceptually hell in in a lot of ways. Like, again, we have this sense of these, the, the workers are sort of portrayed as these, like, as these, like, wraiths who have lost yeah, sort of like- all sense of self, which is, I think, very true to the conceptualization of um, what sort of happens to your, like, soul after you die, In at least in, in some sort of, like like conceptions of the underworld. Like there is this like loss of sort of personality. Yeah, I understand your gripe, but at the same time I don't think it's at least to me it's never communicated like it's not trying to say oh this is like a place where the devil is torturing people, like that's not really the vibe that's being given off, but I know like that the usage of the word hell is annoying for you.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's just like it's this is my like in this particular case, it's a petty gripe in general it is a moderate gripe, yeah, I would I, say.
1: Yeah, no, I would I would say that that's Yeah,
0: <laughs> because there are definitely things that are way more guilty of this particular sin, as it were. <laughs> Town is, like, okay on this score, but it did come up for me as a thing as I was listening to it, and I was like, hmm, worth bringing up that this shit makes me nuts. <laughs> Speaking of things that other stuff is way more guilty of, but that Hadestown also does a little bit. Shall we start with Hades and Persephone? Yes. <laughs> okay, so... So. Hadestown is not on the, like, Tumblr feminism end of the Hades and Persephone reimagining scale. However... <laughs> It, I like that as one end of the scale. <laughs> I mean, listen. When it, when we do any kind of Alexander media, we will revisit Tumblr feminism or Tumblr queer rights activism as the one end of the scale. Oh boy. But it's also not I don't know. I don't even know what would be representative of the other end of the scale, which would be the end of the end of the scale where it's like, yeah, Persephone's a victim of rape and she's miserable. Because there's not really anything modern at that end of the scale that I can think of off the top of my head.
1: No, we don't actually
0: get a lot of, we don't get a lot of
1: Persephone in modern media. There's definitely a lot more Hades than Persephone.
0: Yeah, I guess I guess at the other end of that scale would be things where Persephone like doesn't even really come into it, and Hades is an out and out villain. Like for example, Disney's Hercules. That's
1: exactly what I was thinking. The one piece of modern media that actually does the opposite and completely ignores Hades um, and talks about Persephone as a victim of trauma is the *Wicked* and *The Divine*. Spoilers for *The Wicked* and *The Divine* here. At one point, one of the characters becomes persephone um this is like a universe where like people like essentially become all these different gods and she's experienced this like major trauma so persephone is actually portrayed as like a death god so it's not actually you know it's not telling the hades and persephone story but it is treating persephone as a character who has experienced a major trauma and is trying to deal with that
0: which i think is interesting anyway suffice to say as far as the scale that goes from like Okay, from Tumblr Feminism TM to The Wicked and the Divine, Hadestown is on, is like, maybe, s- is like center-leaning Tumblr Feminism, I would argue. Yeah. Because it frames Hades and Persephone as a love story, which it isn't in antiquity. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is framed as unproblematic in antiquity a lot in a lot of these sources, um... For example, when we get it in... So, I'll talk in a second about the sources that we have for Orpheus and Eurydice. And one of those is Ovid's Metamorphoses. And in his account of Orpheus and Eurydice, he also mentions Hades and Persephone. And he mentions them as, like, being bound by love. But, of course, he also does call it a rape. Like, rape in the Roman sense of, like, grabbing, like, stealing your bride.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: But a woman's consent is not factored into that understanding really at all. And like, yeah, like the thing is, yeah, Hades stole Persephone and dragged her down to the underworld to be his wife. And in various versions, it's more or less sanctioned. In some versions, he does so with Zeus's permission. There's, there's versions where Zeus is Persephone's father and, He gives his brother permission to take her and doesn't tell Demeter anything about it, of course, which is what causes all of these problems. This is what we get in the Homeric Hymn to Demeter, uh, I believe. And yeah, like it, it ends up causing all of these problems. And why the deal ultimately is brokered is because Demeter is pissed off, not because Persephone is sad and Hades like wants to give her her freedom or whatever.
1: Yeah, what I think is interesting about Hades' town is that Persephone is actually an agent. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Persephone is very, yeah, very much an an agent in this story. Um, She, so Hades and Persephone, yeah, they, they are portrayed as having at one point had a loving relationship, but that is no longer the case. And this particular framing is serving like a narrative purpose. So it's not like, like this is, it's interesting because the story is not really a story
0: about them, you're right that it's serving a narrative purpose and not really an ideological one in the way that the, like, Tumblr feminism TM versions of this, like, rehabilitations of this story do, where the idea is, like, oh, if we make it, if we make Persephone an agent and have it be, like, oh, that she chose to run away and marry Hades to get away from her controlling mother, that's, like, feminist because we're making it her choice. And it's, like, is it, though... Because suddenly you are erasing her status as a victim in order to romanticize her relationship with her abuser. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Which, listen, I am all for giving women voices in their stories, and I think that there are benefits and drawbacks to both approaches. Um, We talked about this a little bit, and I'm sure we'll talk about it more in future conversations about Iliadic adaptations with Briseis and narratives that make her, that actually make her a love interest or at the very least like allow her to have an affectionate relationship or a friendly relationship with Achilles as opposed to just being a victim or like just big air quotes Mm -hmm. being a victim but I am generally of the opinion that even if ultimately you want them to develop a relationship that these women from these stories deserve to have their trauma recognized and that at the very, or at the very least have the difficulty of their situation recognized. Like I don't necessarily mind a version where Persephone is like, okay with ending up as queen of the underworld, but I still want an acknowledgement that it would be really scary to be out in the field, like flouncing around with your girls picking flowers and have some motherfucker in a big ass chariot ride up, grab you by the scrap of your neck, and ride into the fucking underworld. Like that would be scary. Yeah, and even I mean, if he doesn't hurt you, mm-hmm. you know.
1: <laughs> yeah, because it is one of the more scary like situation situations in Greek mythology where a woman is seized to be a bride. Like there are there are some other situations of women being like grabbed but you know a lot of the stuff we have like especially with zeus is like he appears and they have sex essentially is is at least sometimes how it's framed whereas this is framed like no he just like appeared out of nowhere grabbed her and dragged her down to the underworld like like it's like a viscerally terrifying thing in the way it's described
0: And I mean, it is worth acknowledging that there certainly was kind of ritual bradnapping as part of marriage customs in some some parts of the Greek world. But that did still happen with like your knowledge and at the very least your family's consent. And like, okay, yeah, whatever. Persephone's father, Zeus, gives consent for this to happen. But she doesn't know the first fucking thing about it. And also she doesn't know the terms of her stay in the underworld. It's not even so much the kidnapping; it's that he tricks her into staying by having somebody feed her the pomegranate seeds when she's down there, and that's why she ends up getting stuck. That, like, that is really disingenuous and manipulative. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And to come back to Hades' town, we get a parallel for all of this stuff to a certain degree with Eurydice between Hades and Eurydice, that she, she does come down to the underworld of her own consent, but is essentially manipulated into signing away her life to Hades without fully understanding the terms of what she's agreeing to. And there are some real heavily euphemistic references to things that happen behind closed doors and that she comes out of that room seeming kind of traumatized about the whole thing and also that that the power dynamic is what it is in that situation that he has so much power over her like it's right there to draw a more direct parallel to the way that Hades acquired Persephone as a wife Mm -hmm. and there's there is some of it even he talks about you know, chaining a woman in gold in one of the songs in um I think it's chant reprise. I
1: think it's chant reprise. It's it's chant reprise because he's speaking to Orpheus here. Yeah. And so I mean I think the thing is is yeah, I mean from that line it's pretty clear Hades does not have a healthy understanding of of relationship dynamics. Or you... consent. Yeah. Or 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 that. And yeah, so I guess it's it's sort of hinted at that there's some yeah. some issues with the way Hades has behaved towards Persephone. But I think the thing with with Hades in and Eurydice is that that is really part, like, more strongly a part of the musical's, like, anti-capitalist message. Yes. <laughs> because that particular thing is more about worker exploitation. Yeah. Because Eurydice is in a situation where she doesn't have any food, and Hades is offering her an out where she's he's like, well, if you come work for me, you're not going to be hungry anymore. And so she and then of course yeah there's the conditions that she doesn't know about that she's going to sort of lose her sense of identity her sense of self so yeah that is that is really like drawing a stronger parallel with like workers exploitation as opposed to like specifically like the exploitation of women by powerful men but i mean that that's also sort of like interwoven in in the text as well
0: though i will say that i always have to like have a little shudder whenever I listen to flowers and get past I trembled when he laid me out. You won't feel a thing, he said when you go down. Nothing gonna wake you now. Dreams are sweet until they're not, etc.
1: Yeah. Like it's a it's a disturbing it's interesting because and I think that's actually that's maybe the the one thing that kind of that maybe does frustrate me a little bit about Hades Town is that there, yeah, there's these very small parts that imply that that Eurydice has been sexually assaulted. Yeah, but it's not really drawn out in a way enough to make it like clear. So it it, it ends up being a little bit confusing to listen to.
0: Yeah, well, and this is one of the things that this is what I mean about where a more explicit parallel to Persephone might have been fruitful Mm. for leaning on that kind of implication. They didn't go there. And it's fine. Like, it just wasn't really what they were doing. It wasn't what they were talking about in the text. No. But it is, it does feel a little like something that they missed or maybe could have pulled, they could have, a thread they could have pulled on more. Yeah. Now, I will say, of course, neither of us have actually seen this musical. And in any musical, like a Broadway cast recording is going to get you a lot. But there's still going to be stuff that you're not going to get because there will be things happening on the stage. It is a visual medium as well as an, an audio one. And there's just stuff we don't know. So yeah. it's possible that this is something that comes through more in the acting and in the dance or whatever than, like, than that we, we know about. Yeah, that. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. If any of our listeners have actually seen this musical by some chance and happen to know, hit us up. So I guess the next obvious place to go would be to talk about Orpheus and Eurydice. Yes. Because that's like the big thing here. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure you have thoughts about this. But before we get into that, let me me recite for you the sources for this story. It won't take very long. (laughs) (laughs) Orpheus and Eurydice for being like, a really well-known story and one that has received a million thousand adaptations in media all the way from like the Renaissance to the present, uh, really doesn't have a lot of sources that are a whole version of the story. There's only two that are the whole version of the story. And those are Virgil and Ovid. I will say we know that the story existed before Virgil and Ovid. It certainly has a Greek like an origin in in Greek antiquity, we have references in Euripides. There's a reference to it in Alcestis by Euripides, where Admetus, King Admetus, like wishes that his own his own wife is dead, and he wishes that he had Orpheus's power to like bring back his wife. He's like, if only I had Orpheus's voice, I would go get her. But he doesn't. Instead, he has Heracles. <laughs> <laughs> and there is a reference in plato's symposium there's like kind of a version presented in in plato's symposium where um orpheus the story seems to be mostly the same but orpheus is presented only with like an apparition of his wife and never really gets given the chance to bring her back so it's this kind of pessimistic version of the story and there's also like a weird offhand reference in the oratory of Isocrates, specifically in in Bucyrus, that seems to imply that according to Isocrates, Oratheus actually did bring her back. Interesting. I don't know enough about Isocrates to like comment on that any further but yeah it's I mean it's a really throwaway line in this like longer piece of oratory but yeah it's very weird
1: I literally
0: don't know who Isocrates is yeah so. I mean yeah he's an orator he made speeches about stuff I guess that's all I know about him <laughs> but, and I mean, but I mean that's and so that's like late 5th to early 4th century BCE sometime so that's a good like Four or five hundred years before Virgil and Ovid, this yeah. story is obviously kicking around in antiquity. Yeah.
1: yeah, it's worth noting again if for those less familiar with classical literature. Yet, yeah, both Virgil and Ovid are late first century BCE, early first century CE, around that time period. Roman poets, yes, both writing in Latin. Uh, yeah. So that, yeah. And I actually had no idea that there were there was no full Greek source for the story. That's really interesting. I assumed that Euripides had written a
0: play about it. No. Um, well, yeah. I mean, it's possible that he did. It's possible that multiple people did. Um, but uh, for those who aren't aware, like 80% of all, of, probably more than that, actually, I can't do math. A huge percentage of all of the Greek drama that ever got written is just gone. We just don't have it. I mean, it, it is
1: old. like it was 2500 years ago. So are we surprised that it's gone? <laughs>
0: I mean, we'll know exactly. Anyways, suffice to say, we don't have a complete Greek source. However, we do have two Roman sources, which are your friend and mine, Virgil. Um, And of course, this doesn't come from like, it's not in the Aeneid, which is the one that everyone's heard of. No, no, it's in the Georgics, (laughs) (laughs) which the Georgics is an agricultural manual where Virgil describes a bunch of like agricultural technique and also writes fan fiction about the invention of those techniques. Yeah, so he... I haven't I, read the whole George X. I think it's worth
1: noting that for some reason we have multiple ancient texts that are agricultural manuals. And I believe multiple ancient texts that are agricultural manuals in verse...
0: Yeah, this and uh shout out to Hesiod's works and days. That's what I was
1: thinking of Hesiod's works and days, which is 700 years earlier um and in Greek is also in verse. So yeah, people were writing poetry about the farm cuz that was like a cool thing to do, I guess.
0: Yeah, and it's it's like didactic, like it's meant to teach people how to be good farmers or like farm managers. Anyway, so this particular section, it's the very end of the Georgics, it's book three of, book three of the Georgics, where he's talking about apiculture specifically, which is beekeeping. <laughs> and his um, his fuckboy beekeeper, O.C., uh, I think his name's Aristias, <laughs> is like wandering around going, hey, why, why are my bees sad? And he like, there's a rehash of that bit in the Odyssey where Odysseus captures... Proteus to like find out why he's cursed almost line for line and Proteus the like old man of the sea who keeps sea cows or whatever is like you're cursed because Poseidon hates you except in the Georgics because it's this fuckboy beekeeper he's like you're cursed because Orpheus hates you because his wife is dead because you were chasing her around trying to like rape her in the field I guess. And she stepped on a snake because she wasn't paying attention, and then she died. And Orpheus has cursed you forever.
1: Oh man, yeah, that's that <laughs> sure is some fan fiction that Virgil wrote. Yeah, uh, shout out to Virgil, honestly, like the best fanfic writer of all time, the Aeneid, an excellent fan fiction.
0: Yeah, yeah, we
1: love to see it.
0: So yeah, so this detail that. Eurydice died because some fuckboy beekeeper was chasing her around. As far as I could tell, like, looking this shit up doesn't exist anywhere else. It originates with Virgil and it doesn't last. Like, this is not the version that has stuck around,
1: that is clearly the superior version, though. That's hilarious.
0: Oh, my God. I mean, before you judge this to be the superior version, let me tell you about Ovid. Oh, boy. So, Ovid has... Spoke too soon. Yeah. So, I mean, Ovid's... Well, okay. So, Ovid's version is basically closer to the one that everyone knows, which is that she just was frolicking with her dryad buddies. This is, this is where we get the concept that she might have been a nymph herself. Oh, okay. Because she... Her, like ladies-in-waiting in in these these versions of the myth are nymphs. They're dryads specifically. They're like tree or flower nymphs. So there's some idea that maybe Eurydice was conceived of as being also a nymph. Anyway. So she's like frolicking with them beside a river and a snake rears up and bites her on the foot and she dies. And it's just like a complete tragic accident. Basically that it's like a twist of fate. Ovid has this detail that like Orpheus used his magic powers of singing to summon Hymen, the God of marriage to like attend their wedding. But that the torch that Hymen carries like was fluttering. So they were kind of cursed all from the start. Yeah. Which is very unfortunate. Ripto Orpheus. And yeah. And then Orpheus like goes down. There's this really great passage in Ovid. So th- this is specifically the metamorphoses um, that this comes from. And there's this great passage where it talks about him like, singing and playing his lyre as he descends. Orpheus carries a lyre that is a gift from Apollo. Um, in some versions, he is the son of Apollo and Calliope, the muse of epic poetry. In others, he's just the son of Calliope and like some other guy. <laughs> but yeah, in any case, his lyre is a gift from Apollo. He's closely associated with Apollo in, in some ways. And yeah there's this great passage where he's singing and playing his lyre and like the whole underworld comes to a a standstill to like listen to him play fucking Ixion on his wing of his like ring of fire stops rotating and Sisyphus stops pushing his rock and like like pops a squat on his rock <laughs> to like listen and you know Tantalus stops reaching for the fruit that will not reach his hand for a minute to like listen and everybody stops and Orpheus shows up and is like, look, I'm not here to fuck shit up in the underworld. I'm not here to steal Cerberus. I just want my wife back. (laughs) And so in, in Virgil's version, it is specifically Persephone or Prosperina in the Latin Mm. who commands that um, Eurydice be allowed to follow Orpheus out all that it's kind of both of their decision so we have a little bit of divergence there and yeah like he has to walk up with her walking behind him there's some version and I can't remember I think it's more I think it's later and I can't really I can't remember which but there's some version where it's actually that she not only does she have to follow him up but she has to follow him up in silence and she calls out to reassure him and mm. that's why she gets banished back because it's actually like because of her. Oh. This great. might have been this might have been like a more modern interpretation to like give her agency. I just read about it somewhere and was yeah. like, that's kind of interesting. But the traditional thing and this comes from both Virgil and Ovid is that his will falters, he 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 loses faith that she's still following him and he turns to look. Sometimes it's just that he like loses his nerve, sometimes it's that he partially he's full of doubt and also that he's just desperate for another look at her because mm-hmm. he like is really in love with her and he looks over his shoulder and yeah and that in neither of these versions does she condemn him for looking because she the idea is that she kind of understands that he only looked because he loves her yeah and wanted to be sure that she was still there
1: yeah i have a question for you which yes. is so in Town, eurydice has quite a lot of agency like she has these like wants and needs like she wants to eat and <laughs> yeah even though she loves Orpheus he's not providing her with food so she's like gotta find some way to feed myself yeah how much of like Eurydice's personality do we get in Ovid and in Virgil no get any yeah nothing. okay that was my suspicion yeah was that we get we get she's nothing. a car-
0: she's a cardboard cutout of a woman for Orpheus to love.
1: Wow, big shocker. Yeah. Who would have thought that from a Greek source? Yeah. Or sorry, um, sorry a, a Roman source. Yeah. Uh, but and same I mean, different Listen, ones. like,
0: I will say, clearly Orpheus loved her a lot. And this is what makes Ovid the standout version to me, because Ovid has this really explicit detail that after he comes out, he spends a week, like, living on fresh air and sadness because he refuses to eat out of grief. And then he swears an oath to disavow the love of all other women forever and instead decides to introduce the concept of being gay to Thrace, where he's from. (laughs) And he like promises to only ever fuck boys forever. Because he is like Eurydice was the woman for me and if I can't have her, no women. Obviously the thing that you do when your perfect wife is dead is fuck boys only. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck boys only! That's (laughs) Ovid in a nutshell. I mean... Ovid
1: huh? Ovid has an entire text, and I we've probably mentioned this before, but he has an entire text called the Ars Amatoria, which is like a poem on how to pick up chicks.
0: Yeah, it's a sex pest a, manual. A sex pass <laughs> manual. We talked about it at the end of the first Toy Fall of a City episode in the context of Paris being a sex pest.
1: Oh yes. I I have forgotten about this. <laughs> yeah, so my point is is that checks out for something Ovid would do.
0: Yep. So let's talk a little more about orpheus and eurydice in hades town to get back on track <laughs> <laughs> i do really like you brought this up earlier that in this eurydice like has a personality and some agency and i really like that i love their eurydice i think she's really interesting yes i mean yeah the the
1: choice that she makes to go down to the underworld really gets into these sort of like um this complex discussion of agency and the degree to which you can have agency in late stage capitalism
0: yeah so Orpheus and Eurydice and their story I mean obviously they are the primary narrative and so of course this is the case but like that is the number one place where the effectiveness of Town as an act of reception like really shines through that this story is being used really effectively to say something about modern the modern world and like modern society
1: yes and it's not the nice the like really wonderful thing about Town is that it's not just the story that is being used that like the the the, the particular narrative elements but it's also like a lot of the forms musical theater is a fantastic form to portray a sort of like traditional greek tragedy in even though this doesn't like actually have an an ancient greek tragedy that it goes with it uses a lot of the elements the sort of like broader elements of greek tragedy like the chorus yes. um and these like specific sort of um aspects of like formula poetry which i think you probably have more to say about than i do i
0: have lots to say about that um
1: yeah. but yeah like it it uses these particular genre conventions of ancient greek theater to portray its message so that's one of the things that i really love about this <laughs>
0: Yeah, that like these things that have come forward in our theatrical tradition are being used really effectively, not just the story itself, but like, yeah, as you said, all the formal elements. And that's really, uh, really sexy of Anais Mitchell to do that.
1: (laughs) It sure is. It really just, wow. I just get so excited um, about the chorus. Wow. Choruses. We love to see them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Let's talk about the chorus for a second. So... The chorus is like the thing that makes Greek tragedy what it is in a lot of ways. I mean, okay, yeah, limited number of actors on the stage mm-hmm. and then the chorus. But like, yeah, like the chorus being there and doing their thing and providing this kind of... I mean, scholars have argued for literal centuries about what the chorus is. There's no one thing that the chorus is, partly because we just don't have that many examples of tragedy Uh, As I, like, was saying earlier, we only have 14, 14 plus 18 is 20, 32. Um, We only have 32 surviving tragedies. And so it's a little hard, like, looking at that to be like, well, is this one that's kind of weird, actually kind of weird? Or is it more normal than we think, but not very many of this, like, sort of thing? Mm. Did not very many examples of this survive? Yeah. It's really hard to tell. Yeah, and
1: what do we have? Like two. We've got what Euripides and Sophocles and Aeschylus and Aeschylus. So we've we got have three, three. Yeah, playwrights. three playwrights, which is you know not very many and I playwrights. Mean, well,
0: okay, we have like three and a half playwrights because it is generally agreed that the Prometheus Bound, although attributed to Aeschylus, is not actually by Aeschylus.
1: Oh, interesting. I didn't know that.
0: Yeah, but we don't know who it is by, and so. <laughs> We just sort of continue to say that it's by Aeschylus, even though a lot of smart it's, it's people... by, scare quotes, Aeschylus. Aeschylus. yeah. <laughs> but lots of smart people have argued that it's not. Okay. Um, so I'm, I personally, I don't actually know enough, like, I don't know enough about the Prometheus Bound or about Aeschylus' like, writing ticks <laughs> to really have an opinion on this myself. I just know that there's a debate. But yeah, there's not a lot, so it's hard to be like, oh yeah, the chorus is this in Greek tragedy. Like, no. But it is important, and musical theatre is one of the few, like, forms of modern media of any kind that has preserved the chorus at all. Yeah. And it's used really effectively in Hadestown. Yes. Partly because I am of the opinion that... Hermes is the chorus leader more than he is like, okay. So you get this Mm. character sometimes air quotes around character Mm. in tragedies. That is the chorus leader who kind of speaks with a single voice or like represents the chorus or will stand out from them slightly to like say stuff. I mean, Hermes isn't quite a chorus leader because he doesn't share an identity with the rest of the chorus. No. But he almost performs that function in that he gives he he performs a choral function as well to some degree. It's just that he is only one person where he's giving some like insight and some thematic sort of gesture here and there throughout the musical, yeah. which is what the chorus often does. Well so he sort of
1: essentially like frames the story like he introduces the story and the characters and then he sort of aside from there's like a song at the very end called raise our cups which is sort of like a an additional piece at the end that's not really part of the story the set the the second last song he sort of closes the book essentially on the story so he's 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 sort of an error yeah yeah
0: and i mean the chorus aren't Narrators. Yeah. But they often do a lot of like scene setting and they point at themes and stuff like that. So the actual chorus, of course, is very much a chorus and they do a damn good job at representing the interests of. So often the chorus represents the interests of other people who are affected by the events of the main action that are being played out by the actors, but who are not involved.
1: Oh, okay, yeah. Because I was gonna ask you, like, specific. Because I, again, I'm not that familiar with Greek direct tragedy, but yeah, that really makes sense now because that is exactly what the chorus does in Hades Town.
0: Yeah. So, for a really good example, would be in Aeschylus' Agamemnon, mm-hmm. the chorus is old men of this old citizen men, mm. who are because of their age, very much subject to who's in charge of the city and what's going on and also who are old enough to remember Agamemnon as king really fondly and who are looking forward to having him back and stuff like that and so Agamemnon returns and then gets murdered and Clytemnestra takes over and these guys they're like Involved enough in society and they have enough of a place in society that they are very much concerned with the like political turnover involved in Clytemnestra's coup, but they can't really do anything because none of them are fighting age and also they can't really get involved in the immediate affairs of the royal family. They don't have enough knowledge ahead of time, for example. So, like, that kind of thing is very much what, particularly the chorus in their identity as the underworld laborers, where they are, it is very important to them what happens between, like, Hades and Persephone and Orpheus and Eurydice, because to them, Eurydice managing to escape the bondage that they are also subject to is, like, representative of hope, and also, and, like, means the potential to kind of have space to renegotiate and also that they provide the pressure. They are witnesses to the negotiation and provide pressure on Hades that like they're going to riot if he isn't fair. Yeah. These are characters. This is a collective character with a stake in the action, but who cannot be directly involved. Yes. And so therefore their perspective is useful and interesting and it does they do a lot of scene setting as well in chant in both in both chants oh yeah absolutely without actually taking part in the action yeah i would say the chorus
1: is like particularly important for the theme of like capitalism is bad yeah <laughs> the the discussion of worker exploitation um because orpheus is really orpheus is a appearance not only his appearance and his his um song that he sort of sings as he's coming into the underworld not only is helps eurydice remember who she is again but it it sort of wakes up all of the workers they start to have a sense of their own agency again once orpheus comes in so yeah that's that's kind of how that functions
0: yeah that that orpheus's song has an effect on all of them is important and they become more charactery when he's present. Yes. Yeah, it's it's just used really effectively. And I, I mean, it's especially appropriate for an adaptation of a, of a myth like this to be a little true to like where it comes from in that sense. But I mean, musical theater in general has a chorus. Yeah. It's definitely a thing. Yes. But I think that the chorus has an identity in this in a way that is not that common in other musicals that I've seen.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like, I, I can't really think of a way... Yeah, the chorus doesn't isn't necessarily used in the same way in a lot of other musicals. Um, and it's also interesting because the chorus is, like, introduced by yeah. Hermes. Yeah. Yeah, as a character. Whereas, yeah, I'm trying to think of other musicals, even, you know, something like Hamilton. Like, yeah. there's a chorus members, but they don't really... They're yeah, not a character. And, and in
0: some the way of them the do. Choruses. Yeah. And some of them do like step in and out mm-hmm. a little bit to like do stuff, but it's definitely not the chorus is not a character no. in the way that they are in Hades Town. And I mean, that's fine. Not every story needs that. I will say that it's partly because Hades Town is a small cast. There just aren't that many characters. Yeah. And so having the chorus be a character functions really well for that. The other kind of choral character that we didn't talk about, we haven't really talked about much, is the Fates. Oh,
1: yes. yes.
0: They are technically a chorus. There are three of them. They have a collective identity, and they perform a narrative function more than a character one.
1: Although they do, I would describe them as almost the like devil sitting on the character's shoulder a lot of the time, like especially with Eurydice.
0: Well, yeah. So if the chorus is a sort of positive... Character who are helpers to Orpheus and Eurydice, the fates are negative. Yes. And I mean, it's interesting because this is like kind of the concept of fate in Greek mythology. We've talked about this a lot. We talked mm-hmm. about it a lot in Trifall of the City. Fate is not really circumventable in Greek mythology. Your fate is your fate. Mm-hmm. And so we see them pushing Eurydice towards this ultimate conclusion and then Orpheus towards this ultimate conclusion that we all know is what has to happen because we get told by Hermes right at the beginning, this is an old story and we all know it. Yeah. And we all know how it ends. Yeah. And wanting it to be different isn't enough to change fate. Yes.
1: You know, know, I think it's interesting to compare to compare the portrayal of these fates, because these fates are very, like, they're they're sung by sort of, I don't know, wi- women who are, like, I guess they're, like, middle-aged women, like women in their 30s or 40s, versus the portrayal of the fates in Percy Jackson,
0: Yeah, they are, like, like really ancient
1: old. women. But yeah. both of these portrayals are very, sort of, like, draw on the intermaterial really nicely. Like, they're very different portrayals, but they both do it very well. They're both sort of, like, a, the fates as, like, a collective of women who are... They're each sort of performing a different role, um, but they're also functioning as a collective, um, which I think is interesting.
0: Yeah. And I mean, the Fates are great. They're intimidating, but they're not scary. Yes. They're not like spooky. They're not like the witches in Macbeth, where they're these like demonic, (laughs) scary entities. But they are, they have power. And I mean, their songs are great.
1: All of their songs, all of their songs slap.
0: The The transition into Chips Are Down fucks oh, in yeah. both versions. Yeah,
1: absolutely. <laughs> and they all have, oh, in, in the Broadway cast version, like, the, the way it's composed is, like, each woman is singing in a different register. So they have somebody who's like, sings, uh, I don't know the term for, like, a very low female voice. An alto?
0: No, like, no lower, lower than an alto. Yeah, she's, oh, like, singing. like, like, like um wanna say like a uh, like a contralto? yeah, something yeah. something like that. but yeah, we've
1: got we've got essentially three women singing in three different registers, and it sounds amazing.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, it's really good. They do a really good job of it. Yeah, they're fabulous. And it's not that the fates are mean. no, they just are what they are. yeah. they, yeah, it, it
1: is a, like the strong sense of inevitability that yeah. is, that is present throughout the plays is, is very much like embodied by the fates, yeah, it's great. So another thing that I was kind of wondering is, like, do the fates appear as Dramatis Personae in any sort of ancient plays?
0: No. (laughs) Not really. The fates are one of these Greek deities that are basically the personification of a concept. Mm. So they certainly are, like, around, but they are, like, the Moirai, capital M, fate? Yeah. Capital F? Not really, and I mean, they are personified as individuals in certain things. They each have a name, but to the best of my knowledge, they are not dramatis persona in any existing theater piece. I might be wrong about that, but nothing that I know of. Okay. So did you want to talk a little bit about,
1: I guess, poetry now?
0: Yeah, it's like, that's like my last big thing Okay, is formulaic poetry mm-hmm. and the refrain. Yes. I made a hand gesture, and I'm sure that my face lit up. I'm very excited about this. So, like, as somebody who studies Homer in particular, like, formulae are very exciting to me. (laughs) This is a dumb thing to be excited about. No, it's not. I'm just, like, a big nerd. You're incredibly valid. So, a formula in poetic, like, language is a basically a stock phrase. They're semi-interchangeable that do a particular metrical thing and therefore can be used repeatedly. So for example, in Homer, there is a specific line that introduces direct speech that are like, it's a very similar line that just gets swapped out with people's names and epithets. And people's names and epithets are often formulae that get used the same way every time because then they can just be swapped swapped in and out of those lines.
1: Yeah, I think it's worth noting that like the meter is the f- like number one most important thing in ancient Greek epic poetry and and, and Latin, in,
0: Latin epic yes, poetry. but also in but also in drama. Okay. Yeah. Because it's important to note that we've been talking about oh like musical theater is a genre that receives greek drama in a lot of ways and one of the things is that greek drama was also musical theater people sang and danced a lot yeah the chorus sang and danced constantly and so greek drama is also all written in meter it's different meter Mm -hmm. but it's definitely not like it's all in verse so yeah like Formulate poetry and these stock phrases that exist, it's definitely much more of a thing in Homer because Homer is composed so that it can be recited really easily and having formulae that you can just memorize all the formulae instead of having to memorize the specific words. Even if you don't know what exact word goes at the end of that line, if you know what formula goes at the end of the line, you can swap in whatever the fuck comes into your brain when you get there. Yeah,
1: so there's a, a sense that stuff like Homer was essentially kind of like made up on the spot as part of like competitions. So yeah, that's where having the formula becomes really useful because you're like, Oh shit, I need something that fits the meter. And you have like these set, these sets of stock
0: phrases that fit the meter. It's very much like an oral. It was an, it was an oral genre before it was ever written down for a very long time. And so the formulae are a symptom of its origin as like an oral form. And so the reason that I'm talking about this is that one of the things that formulae do is that it can be really significant to like look through a poem and find the places that certain phrases repeat. The way certain words and phrases get used can be really meaningful because to hear a phrase in one context and then hear it again a little later on, it pulls your mind back to the place that you heard it the first time and you go, oh, this sounds like that other thing, like it reminds you of that other thing. And that's what a refrain or a leitmotif does mm-hmm. in music, and in in musical theater. And Hades Town uses its refrains and its like musical leitmotifs so effectively. There are so many amazing like repetitions and callbacks. Characters have themes, and there are certain lines of music or or phrases, even just like in the lyrics, that get reused. That really hit when you hear them again
1: yeah and i think also too there's there's situations where we have like the whole cast singing where these lay motifs are like sort of interspose on top of each other really effectively and really interestingly in in both of the chants this happens quite a bit where we have like multiple char- characters singing at one time um we'll have like the chorus singing something and while like eurydice and orpheus are both singing and so we get this really sort of complicated emotional landscape from that sort of effect.
0: <laughs> yeah, so to give some, like, examples of lines that get echoed a lot. I mean, when you listen to Hated Sound, the first song that you hear is Road to Hell, which yeah. is the first line you get is once upon a time there was a railroad line. And you get this, like, this thing about, like, you know... Once Upon a Time There Was a Railroad Line, There Was a Railroad Track, whatever. You Mm -hmm. get that line in a lot of songs in this musical. And every time you kind of think back to the other times that you've heard it, it conjures this thing instantly. One of the things that this really does is that it creates this kind of through line Mm -hmm. for the entire thing that allows you to, like, you, like, circle back. Mm -hmm. And... I guess what I'm saying is that as far as formal elements go, Hades Town functions similarly to an epic poem as well as it does to uh, a tragedy.
1: Yeah, well, which is interesting too because this is the the broader work fun- functions in an epi- epic poem, but then we also have specific songs that are emulating epic poetry, of, which are literally called Epic One, Epic Two, Epic Three, where Orpheus is singing about the the love story of Hades and Persephone. And so, yeah, so we have, like, the broader sort of emulation of epic poetry, but then also, like, this sort of this emulation of it that follows the idea of epic poetry, like, sort of more closely.
0: Yeah, it kind of invokes the, like, concept of epic into the text of the Yeah. Of the musical. Which is very fun and sexy, I I must say. And yeah, I, I just like, I think it's worth pointing out that this is something that that we have brought forward in time from antiquity and that I just think it's really great that this musical that is telling a story from antiquity is also using these forms so well. Yes.
1: I mean, yeah, because it, it really knows what it's doing with the material. I mean, this is sort of, I think, the through line of our podcast, but a good adaptation is one that knows that is using specific material from antiquity for specific reasons. And yet this one is also using specific forms from antiquity for specific reasons. And then, yeah, you end up with this, this musical that is like, it's beautiful and deeply emotionally affecting. And, and, and what what I think is most interesting about this musical is, is that it's communicating a very modern theme. It's talking about worker exploitation.
0: Yeah. Um, But it's so aware of it's, intellectual and artistic genealogy that like it really is very it's really really striking as an act of reception as well as just as a story
1: yeah another cool thing that i thought about with um the epics is epics one two and three are all they're all i believe they are all just orpheus with his guitar. Which is actually funny, because in the show, he, he has, like, a guitar on his back the whole time. They actually, at one point, call it a liar. But, you know. Yeah. It's because we're in this sort of, like, modern setting. He's He's got a guitar. Yeah. Which is sort of... Which is echoing the format of the epic poet, just with a liar, like, singing to an audience. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's,
0: ugh, it's... it's so good. <laughs> it's really good. And, I mean, I don't know that I have anything else that's, like, intelligent to say about this, but... It's good.
1: Yeah, I one of the things that I like actually noticed when listening through this like this time around was just uh the word some of Anais Mitchell's wordplay is so good. Yeah. It's just she uses words in ways that like where the word means so many different things. Like uh Hermes calls Orpheus a poor boy with a liar and I mean poor is means several things. It it means he's both like financially bereft but also all of these bad things are about to happen to him. There's at one point where Hades is, and I forget who's singing about Hades at this point, but there's a line, his loneliness moves him crude crude and black. And that follows a discussion about how he's, he's, building all of this machinery and extracting resources from the ground.
0: Like, there's a line... It I evokes go, crude oil well, really, yeah, really cause, effectively. Because they yeah.
1: mention oil, oil and coal in, I think, a line previous. And I just noticed that yeah. this time around. I'm like, Yeah,
0: I heard so that this good. time around, too. Yeah, and I think that, like, oh, there's just, like, so many little details in the writing that are really praiseworthy and mm. stuff that they pulled from various sources. Orpheus's ability to like charm the birds and the trees is like a thing from kind of miscellaneous mythology to that they pulled and they used it so well in wedding song. It's great. <laughs> it's, it's
1: upsetting. It, it is deeply upsetting to both of us. How good this. Yeah. This, this media is. Yeah. Um, I also, I don't think I fully understood tragedy as a, art form until i listened to hades town i like yes. hades town crystallizes what is so fantastic about tragedy and why people enjoy tragedy because i was like why to me the 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 question in my head has, has always been like why would you tell something sad but hermes all sort of very explicitly states that we're telling this story because we it's a it's recognizing the importance of trying even if the inevitabil- inevitability is that you're going to fail. Yeah, a, It is about trying and failing, and that's why we tell these stories over and over again. But I think also what differentiates this telling from the ancient tellings is that Orpheus's actions actually do have an effect. He isn't successful at his goal, but because he is, as Hermes says, he he can imagine the way the world could be instead of the way that it is, he actually affects Persephone and allows spring to come again. So yeah. he, he provides a sort of material benefit for the people who are still alive, that they're you know able to have more food essentially because he, he was able to affect Persephone, even if he failed to bring back Eurydice.
0: Yeah. Despite being a deeply tragic story, it's a really hopeful version. Yeah. In a lot of ways. And I mean, it's a great thing to listen to now, I think. Mm. I will also say a much less bitter slap in the face to listen to Why We Build the Wall in the year 2021 than it was to listen to it when I first heard this musical, which was <laughs> January of 2020, oh. and everything was very grim. Yes.
1: <laughs> so if you don't know, So Why We Build the Wall is a song where Hades is doing a call in response with the chorus. Asking why they're building this wall,
0: and I don't think we should say anything more about it because people should go listen to it for themselves. Yes, you don't have to listen to the rest of the musical to listen to this song to and like to understand it. Yeah, but like, go listen to this song if you haven't. It fucks me up every single yeah. time.
1: Also, um, it's worth noting, Anais Mitchell wrote this in like I think two thousand five. Like yeah. in the mid two thousands, this is not a specific reference to any particular political figures. And A.S. Mitchell is just a prophet.
0: Yeah, <laughs> dear Apollo, thank you for this gift of prophecy. <laughs> you may have it back. <laughs>
1: I remember the first time I heard "Why We Built the Wall" was actually in a Philosophy Tube video essay, and I was like, "Wow, that is a great song." And I didn't realize it was from Hades Town. And then I was listening to Hades Town, and I was like, "Oh, this song's from Hades Town. What a great song!"
0: Yeah, I listened to it for the first time when I was listening to Hadestown and I like listened to it and then I stopped and went back and listened to it again before I progressed on in the musical because oh. I was like, this is too much for me.
1: Yeah, it is a fantastic song. And everyone should go listen to it. And also the rest of Hadestown. I mean, yeah, if you want to have your heart ripped in half, but um, in a good way. In a good way. Yeah. I there are some parts of Hades Town that I listen to over and over again and some parts that I've only listened to like a few times because they're too heartbreaking. Specifically, like doubt wait, comes in. Doubt comes in. <laughs> yeah. Um which is beautiful. Um but also it just it just smashes your heart into about a million pieces.
0: Yeah. It's real hurdy. Real hurdy. But it's so good. Yeah, I think maybe some
1: final final thoughts about Town. this musical also really it has an important thesis on like the utility of art the fact that Orpheus can make people see the the way the world could be is really I think sort of Aeneas's Mitchell on on the function of art in like political struggle and and not maybe just political struggle but in terms of like trying to sort of more broadly make a better world that is a function of art
0: Yeah, people, like, don't function super well without any hope. And even if you aren't fighting the system, you still have to be able to be happy in your life. Yeah. And art does well at that.
1: Yes. And I think another thing, another sort of theme that I really like is that Hades isn't... Hades is not an evil villain, but he's doing these, these deeply harmful things, specifically, like, exploiting all of these people because of... His own internal sort of emotional damage, and that it offers like an, a a reasonable thesis as to why people get exploited and and why people you know have this drive to sort of seek an endless amount of wealth is to try and fill an emotional void that they're not dealing with.
0: Yeah but it doesn't redeem him on no. that basis. No, it doesn't. Which is
1: refreshing. Yeah, it's an explanation instead of a redemption. Yeah. I re- I really like him as an antagonist
0: because again, he's not he's never portrayed as evil. He's Yeah, he, like he's doing evil things and he doesn't get forgiven for the wrongs that he's mm-hmm. doing, but there's a lot of nuance to his character. He's not incapable of having hope and of giving people a chance. It's just that his own damage prevents him from being generous. Yes,
1: he's more concerned about satisfying his own internal emotional state than he is concerned about how he's treating other people.
0: Yeah. And and that's that's a really interesting way to read this character and an interesting thing to do with this character that I think is not out of the realm of stuff that seems like interesting and like a clever like an intelligent engagement with the original material without being pat. Yes. You know, it's everything about this musical has a lot of nuance. There's a lot going on. Every character has a really layered internal life. And I just like it a lot.
1: Yeah. It's almost like Anais Mitchell has been working on this. For uh, fifteen years, yeah,
0: and and has produced an extremely effective, enjoyable work of art that uses its materials well and uses them to not only to shed new light on the old story and like do fun stuff with the old story, like giving Eurydice a personality, which is just like a, a thing to appreciate in an adaptation of the story, but also uses all of that to like say something intelligent about the world. Yes. Is that so much to ask? <laughs>
1: <laughs> In conclusion, I think thanks, Aeneas, for this dope musical is that—that's all I gotta say. It's we great. You should listen to it. We like it a lot.
0: Thanks for listening to Classically Trained. This podcast is hosted and produced by Allison Marlin and Julia Peroni on the traditional ancestral and unceded territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations. You can listen and subscribe to this podcast on our website classicallytrainedpod.podbean.com and anywhere podcasts are found. If you'd like to reach us, we can be emailed at classicallytrainedpod at gmail.com, contacted via Twitter at classicallypod, or you can leave a review. Finally, some acknowledgments. We'd first like to thank Nicholas Judy and Dark Fantasy Studio who produced our wonderful music. We would also like to thank the Society for Classical Studies for their help in supporting this podcast. Our next episode in two weeks will be on Percy Jackson Book 2, The Sea of Monsters. As always, be well, and do not, under any circumstances, do as the Romans did.